Hello, dear listeners. This is Andrew from Detect This. I just wanted to give a quick apology at the beginning of the show and say I'm sorry this episode is being released so late. Uh, we told you we were going to try and get uh, the episodes out by Wednesday or Thursday at the latest. We were not able to do that this week. Uh, everything was going smoothly, and then kind of out of nowhere, I ended up getting a new full-time job. So that took over a lot of my time, and Charlie had a personal emergency in the middle, in the middle of the week that he had to take care of. Uh, so just a lot of things happened, and as a result, we were not able to edit the episode as quickly as we would have liked. But uh, it is out now. Fortunately, it kind of worked out because HBO did not air a new episode of True Detective this week due to the Super Bowl. So you can now listen to our discussion of last week's episode to fill the void, so to speak, uh, as a way of making it up to you, though. As a way of saying we're sorry for being late with this episode, we are going to record another brief discussion uh, later this week in a couple days uh, going over some of your feedback if we receive any feedback. So if you uh, if you have any thoughts on the show or last week's episode and where things left off, please write in. You can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Leave us your feedback, leave us your thoughts, and uh, if we get enough, we will release a bonus episode of Detect This in order to make up for being so late this week uh, as a special gift to you, our listeners, because we really do appreciate all of your support. We are doing our very best to get these discussions out to you in time, but uh, sometimes it just isn't possible because, uh, you know, we don't get paid for this. This is a hobby, and we do have lives and and other things that we have to take care of sometimes. But uh, yeah, go ahead, leave us feedback, and uh, if we get enough, we will give you a special bonus episode. All right, here's the show. This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number three of Detect This on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey Andrew. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm really freaked out, Andrew. There's some guy in his underwear and a gas mask in, uh, carrying around a machete in my neighborhood, and I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're not hallucinating. Charlie, we know you we know you tend to do that sometimes. Andrew, I tripped on acid last week, I told you. Not this week. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, before we get started with today's episode, uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has emailed us and contacted us on Twitter and iTunes. It seems like people are discovering the podcast and, and really enjoying it. We're very grateful for all your support, and, and we're kind of baffled that people care what we have to say about this television show. <laughs> so uh, so thank you. We appreciate it. We really do. <laughs> it's totally true. Thank you so much. Seriously, when I saw that we had seven uh, ratings on iTunes, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. We did get a few emails and voicemails over the past week that we're going to talk about 
at the end of the show, Charlie, uh, after you and I discuss this week's episode. Before we do that, though, I'd like to induct a few honorary members into our Detect This team to help us solve the case of this show. All you have to do to become an honorary member is leave us a positive review on iTunes. Uh, that really helps us out a lot. And this week, we got four new five-star reviews. I, I, was, I couldn't believe it, Charlie. I was super surprised. Me too. Uh, the first review is from FitzBJ. The headline is Great Listening, and the review says, What an excellent discussion. Keep up the good work, boys. Thanks a lot, Fitz. Thanks. <laughs> we appreciate it. We're going to do our best to keep up the good work. You know, we're trying to solve the case of this show, Charlie, and I was trying to think about what positions we need filled to help us solve this case. <laughs> and I think, you know, FitzBJ, we do have an opening for a cult expert. We could really use a cult expert. So we will happily bring you on the Detect This team as our resident cult expert. Uh, the second review is from Earth Guy. The headline is Wow. And the review says, Way better than the Buzz one. Keep up the good work, guys. Uh, Char- I think he's referring to the other True Detective podcast, uh, the After Buzz TV podcast on, uh, on, on True Detective. After Buzz, they've got a whole network of TV shows. I'm flattered that you think we're better than they are, Earth Guy. It means a lot. I haven't listened to their True Detective show yet. I have listened to a few of their other programs. They're not a bad network. And I'm jealous of all the shows that they managed to cover on their network. Uh, But thank you for the review. Yes, thank you. I didn't even know who they were until Andrew just cleared that up. But uh, the fact that they are so popular and have so many shows really, really means a lot. So, yes, thank you so much. Uh, Earth Guy, we're going to bring you on is our new honorary uh, videographer for when we need to do some serious, probably really depressing interviews with suspects. We're going to call you <laughs> and, and use your video production skills. <laughs> our, our, our third review is from Stephen Vaughn. The headline is Great Podcast for a Great Show. The review says, my original review was kind of harsh because they released episode one so late. I think Stephen Vaughn may have given us a bad review at some point, Charlie. Oh, it wasn't bad. It was three stars. That's still better. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, then he writes, uh, they explained this in today's podcast and plan to release new episodes by Wednesday or Thursday. Great podcast, guys. Yes, we apologize that we were late with those first couple episodes, Stephen. We are going to do our best to get the episodes out as soon as possible. We record on Monday nights, and our, our goal is to have them turned around in the editing room by Wednesday or Thursday at the absolute latest. Thank you for for your support. You know, I think if we're going to solve the case of this show, Charlie, we're going to need to bring on Stephen Vaughn as a marriage counselor because clearly (laughs) (laughs) the the characters in this show, they could could use some counseling. (laughs) I think everyone who watches this show needs a little therapy afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Uh, So so hopefully you're up for that, Stephen. Uh, Welcome welcome to the Detect This team. We really appreciate your support. And uh, our final review is from The Moody. The headline says, good listen, and the review says, a great addition to a fantastic show. Keep it up. Thank you very much, The Moody. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. And thanks, everyone. Seriously, like, it means a lot because, uh, Andrew, I believe we got no ratings for our past two shows, right? Yeah, and then something happened and all of a sudden people started listening. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you very much. We're, we're, we're flattered. Uh, the Moody, I think we're going to make you an honorary member of the team and we're going to bring you on as our expert door knocker. Because when you're investigating a case, you got to go <laughs> knock on a lot of doors, got to talk to a lot of people. And if you don't do it just right, you might rub people the wrong way. So we could really use an expert door knocker. So welcome to the team. 
Because, of course, we don't rub people the wrong way at all, Andrew. <laughs> never. Never. <laughs> never. <laughs> uh, well, but, but seriously, we really appreciate all of the support and all the feedback. Uh, we love discussing the show with everyone who's written us. Uh, you make this podcast a lot of fun to do, so thank you and uh, welcome to the team. But uh, let's dive into this week's discussion. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about episode three of season one of True Detective. The episode is titled The Locked Room, and like every episode, it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened? Uh, in 1995, Hart and Cole's investigation leads them to a church led by Minister Joel Thoreau, where they learn that Dora was seen with a tall man with a burnt face. Maggie sets Cole up on a double date with her friend Jennifer. Meanwhile, Lisa breaks off her affair with Hart, which sends him into a jealous rage. After looking into old case files, Cole theorizes that a woman named Rianne Oliver, who drowns three years ago, may have actually been murdered by the same killer. The investigation eventually leads them to their first real suspect, Reggie Ludeau, Rianne's former boyfriend. Meanwhile, in 2012, Cole is still really, really depressing. <laughs> He is, Charlie. <laughs> I'm starting to think that Cole might be the most depressing character I've ever seen on television. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> he's pretty good, pretty high up there. I mean, Don Draper's gotten to some bad lows, but uh, the, yeah, Cole takes the cake. And I feel like I'm going to have to start going to CVS and like buying a bottle of Zoloft before each show, <laughs> each episode airs, and start popping them like M&Ms. So <laughs> yeah, I need some Prozac really, really badly after episodes of True Detective. Every time. Cole goes into one of his monologues i'm just thinking oh he's right <laughs> why are we here what's the point <laughs> <laughs> and that's what makes the show so good but at the same time it is very very dark <laughs> i think by the end of the series we're just going to be like we're not even going to be able to do a podcast we're both going to need electroshock therapy I really want to know what's going to happen, Charlie, when the show comes out on DVD and people just binge watch it. I think it, it's, it's going to be too much for people to handle. It's just too much nihilism and pessimism <laughs> to binge watch it. You can't. I don't. I don't think people would be able to take it. They would. They binge watch season one of True Detective and then they'd go kill themselves because it's just it's too much. I think when it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, they'll have like a limited edition pack, which will come with a free bottle of whiskey. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, that'll come with the box set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's dive into this episode, Charlie. This episode opens with Cole and Hart going to uh, the, the, this church that they've been seeking out, finding this minister, and they have this lengthy debate about religion and whether or not it is helpful for for people or whether or not. It's 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 just meant to it's just an illusion uh, for 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 people that are unwilling to see the truth. It's a really depressing conversation, Charlie. Mm -hmm. But I I'm so happy that there's a show out there where the characters are actually engaging in conversations like that because I feel like it, it, these are the types of conversations that people don't have enough in real life you know people tend to shy away from talking politics and religion when really if you think about it those are probably two of the most important issues out there that's probably what we should be talking about all the time yeah i totally agree and it, it, it it's interesting that like you know it, it this is what makes it so much different than law and order scu and a bunch of other detective shows is those shows are pretty much pure escapism and they're all plot driven and the characters don't really matter and here it's the characters are this uh, main focus, and then their philosophies are uh, prime and center. And 
they don't shy away from, you know, depressing subjects like this. And even as someone who's an agnostic who has never been to uh, church a day in his life, even I couldn't help but get depressed at the stuff that Matthew McConaughey was saying. Because while I'm not exactly religious, it's not like I go up to people and say, oh my god, this is it's such a crock of shit. I mean, you know, these people hate themselves and then they give themselves over to this authoritarian as a form of catharsis. It's so depressing. And then it made it even more frustrating for me because I wanted Woody Harrelson to be like, shut up, dude. Like, you're being kind of a jerk. But at the same time, since Woody Harrelson's character is such a hypocrite, it made it frustrating on for uh, basically all angles for me. And uh, at least it ended with a dark punchline where... Woody Harrelson said, for someone who thinks that the whole world is meaningless and that life is pointless, you do ponder an awful lot. And I still think you're pretty scared. And then Matthew McConaughey says, yeah, well, at least I'm not running through a red light. And Woody Harrelson flips him off. At least it could at least give us a dark chuckle at the end of that instead of just, uh, oh, God, we're five minutes into the episode and I already want to kill myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, personally, Charlie, I, I was raised religious while I'm not very devoutly religious in the traditional sense. Now I find religion and, and theology and spirituality pretty interesting. And I like to read about that stuff and think about that stuff. And I tend to side more, I think, with heart in this debate, kind of like, come on, you're being a little bit too harsh, whether or not you agree that this religious stuff is true. I think it can serve a valuable purpose. It brings people together in community. And I tend to side with, with, with him a little bit more than with, uh, with Cole. But you're right. Because he is such a hypocrite, it is very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a question for you, Charlie, because I, I was trying to think about True Detective and, and HBO in the context of TV in general. And I was thinking about how, okay, you know, the broadcast networks – Mm-hmm. They have a strict, you know, FCC code that they have to follow. Mm-hmm. They have certain guidelines they have to meet, and also they have certain target demographics that they try to cater to. And I feel like a lot of the time, the broadcast networks don't want to get too depressing, or they don't want to get too much into political or religious territory because that could offend a large portion of their viewers. Mm-hmm. I feel like most of the time they try to say stay safe. They either go neutral or they try to appease the religious crowd. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the only other shows I can think of that were on, I'm trying to exclude uh, most normal cable shows uh, and stick with HBO and Showtime and Stars and think of the ones that tackle religion off the top of my head. And the only ones I can think of right now are True Blood and Dexter. And Dexter tackled religion in the sixth season. You know, it had some interesting ideas, but they never went anywhere and they played it really safe. And it was honestly just a terrible, terrible season of television. And then True Blood... Uh, They tackled religion in the second season, but it was honestly one of the weaker aspects of that very strong season of television for me because they used this uh, church, which was very, um, very hateful towards vampires. And it was a very clear allegory on how the church deals with homosexuality. And as someone who is gay, it didn't really go anywhere for me or tackle anything that interesting. It just kind of played it as a safe allegory and then kind of just it, 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 it. didn't really want to break 
through and draw other allegories into um, the politics today. I just kind of wanted to stick with that simple allegory and play around with it in their little world for half a season and then kind of drop it because they didn't know where to go from there. It, it, it's interesting you bring that up, Charlie, because because uh, season five of True Blood actually kind of went more heavily into some of the religious stuff. But even then, even the, the cable shows that, you, that you're bringing up and the premium stations you're bringing up, I feel like whenever shows make religion a part of their themes that they want to explore, they don't really tackle that ultimate question of, well, is religion good or is religion bad? Yeah. They, try to, they kind of try to have it both ways. And whereas on the broadcast networks like CBS, NBC, ABC, I feel like if they bring up religion – they, they they might critique it a little bit, but not too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, Charlie, do you think True Detective, do you think HBO, because it's having McConaughey so front and center giving these long monologues about how silly religion is and about how it's all a ruse and an illusion, do you think the show and the network is trying to appease or appeal to an, an atheist demographic do you think that's part of the reasoning at all or do you think the show is is siding with with mcconaughey or is it just kind of unclear at this point what where where the show's actual sensibilities lie i mean personally i find matthew mcconaughey's character to be more sympathetic than hearts because he's not hypocritical but i don't think that the show is siding with either one of them and plus we've only seen three out of the eight episodes so it's kind of hard to tell when uh, we've only seen less than half of it. But it is a very good question, and I think it's one that uh, we should keep bringing up as the show goes on, because this is a clear topic. It's been very evident throughout all three episodes. And you're right. Another thing uh, that I believe was produced by HBO, it was a movie called Religious with Bill Maher. Oh, right. Which he basically, it, it, it's a, it's kind of a mockumentary. It was by the guy who did Borat, and it's basically Bill Maher walking around making fun of people for being religious. And if you go after hate people who use religion as a defense for their form of bigotry or hatred, I'm okay with that. If you go after the Westboro Baptist Church and people who are homophobic and people who uh, use religion as nothing other than a way to support a slanted view of the world, I'm okay with that. But but he also targeted a lot of innocent people who were religious but weren't actively enforcing their religious beliefs on people. They just were people of faith. And it really made the whole experience very sour for me whenever those scenes came up because I just kept thinking, you know, these people aren't hurting anybody. They are just believing what they believe. They're not enforcing it on anybody. Why are you picking such easy, vulnerable targets that are not doing anything to anyone, and why aren't you going after bigger targets? That's a good point, Charlie. I hadn't I hadn't thought about Bill Maher, but you're right. B- Bill Maher does have a show on HBO, and he has been very vocal and critical about religion as a whole and religion as an idea and as an institution. Uh, so I, I guess this isn't the first time we're seeing HBO, you know, al- allow material that is very anti-religion to a certain extent. It'll be interesting, Charlie, I think, if at the end of this season to see if the show takes a stand one way or the other and what what the ultimate conclusion seems to be. If the show ends up kind of saying, well, yeah, if you think about it, I guess Cole was right. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be interesting because I'm not sure I've ever seen a show that is so pessimistic and so absolute in its critique of religion 
it, it really will be interesting if that's the stance the ultimate the, the show ultimately takes. Just because I, I, I that's not something you we see on TV. No. Oh, I did think of one more show. It, I think it's only for a couple of episodes that it tackles religion. But have you seen Six Feet Under? I haven't. I've, I've been meaning to watch it. I ha- actually have the whole series. I just haven't gotten around to watching it yet. It's quite possibly my favorite show, uh, tied with Breaking Bad. But I did forget about this, uh, but it just came back to me. Uh, there is uh, a character, uh, Michael C. Hall's character, David, who's gay, who uh, in one subplot, I think it's one of the fir- either the first or second season, because I haven't seen the show in years. But he questions... Uh, whether or not he belongs in church and whether or not he can be a prominent member of church because he is gay and he has to come to terms with that. So while uh, the show doesn't exactly tackle homosexuality, so while True Detective doesn't exactly tackle homosexuality, uh, Six Feet Under um, managed to create a subplot where this character came to terms with the fact that he is gay and that God will accept him uh, regardless because any sin can be forgiven. And it was a very interesting episode because it could have felt like very lifetime TV movie-esque and it could have been very sappy and very uh preachy and instead uh like most episodes of six feet under it had just the right amount of dark humor and potent drama to make it credible not to mention michael c hall is an amazing actor if anyone have seen the show or dexter so well it's interesting you, you you say that charlie because it sounds like in six feet under the ultimate conclusion is that religion can be can be good and can be helpful, even though you might have doubts about it. Oh, definitely. And that's interesting to me because I think re- regardless of your of, of people's personal feelings about religion and, and what you believe, I think it's interesting that you have HBO, which doesn't really seem now that now that I think about it, now that you've brought up all these examples, it doesn't really seem to be trying to cater to any particular demographic. It doesn't seem to be trying to uh, appease any particular set of viewers, religious or non-religious. So you do have shows that will bring it up occasionally, and sometimes they will be uh, overall pretty positive about religion. Other times they'll be more critical of it. And True Detective Right now, it seems to just be a show that is willing to be more critical of it, at least in terms of the character of Cole. And I'm starting to feel like, now that we're talking about it, that I guess they it, it all just depends on on the show and the work. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll air whatever as long as it's good television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Six Feet Under. I think I, I I'm not sure. I'm. I can't be 100% positive, but HBO's been doing controversial stuff. I mean, Oz was controversial, Six Feet Under was controversial, and that was over 10 years ago. And they they don't shy away from this sort of stuff. But you're right, this is something, I mean, HBO's always had violent uh, sexual shows and profane shows, but religion is usually just a subplot for their shows, and this is uh, the only example I can think of uh, where religion is current throughout it, at least through the first three episodes. Obviously, we don't know. Maybe it'll get dropped halfway through, but I seriously doubt that since it's been such a primary focus. I do want to say, even though I'm not religious, I hope it doesn't end with being so critical that's like, so if you're religious, there is no God, you're an idiot, and we're all worthless <laughs> and going to die. Because that's so, that goes back to the religious criticism where I'm like, you know, I don't believe in God, but you don't, don't, you don't have to be a jerk about it. I mean. Well, okay, but, but see, Charlie, even though I, I agree with you and I would, I, I might be a little upset if it ended that way just personally. 
I, I would disagree with that philosophy. I do think it would be fascinating if that's how the show actually ends, just because it would be so unlike anything else on television in that respect. Exactly, but even the bleakest, like, serial killer movies like Seven. Huh, if you're playing a drinking game, drink. I just mentioned Seven again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but even Seven, as dark as a film as that is, I mean, this doesn't necessarily have to do with religion, but it has to do with Morgan Freeman's philosophy. Even Morgan Freeman has a line that it is uh, referencing uh, basically that the world's a fucked up place, but life is worth fighting for. And that's not necessarily religious. But that film has such a bleak, depressing ending and even ended on that one quiver of hope that, like, I hope it doesn't go all the way into just, like, kill yourself the show. <laughs> <laughs> really, if we believe Cole, Charlie, everyone becomes a true detective at the moment of death when they finally realize there is no God, <laughs> yeah. that it was all an illusion and they're finally free of this existence and they're free of the the locked room so to speak yeah as soon as i found out what the title meant that was twice as depressing <laughs> because i mean <laughs> locked room you can only think like oh is that like a torture chamber or a dungeon or something and then oh it's even more depressing than that it's a metaphor for what you perceive your life to be and then when you realize that it's all a complete illusion and one other well, okay, thing I will, well, well, oh. to be fair to be fair Charlie, I don't, I don't I don't think the locked room is referring to the fact that it's all an illusion necessarily. I think what Cole is is getting at when he says the locked room is that idea that all of our experiences, our our lives to a certain extent, it's basically just sensory experiences communicated to our brain that only we perceive. Mm -hmm. So, in that respect, our lives really are unique because nobody, nobody, Charlie, will be, could be where I am right now talking to you in this way, having the exact same experience as me. So in yeah. that respect, we will never truly be able to understand each other because at the end of the day, everyone's experience is their own. Which is somewhat optimistic, like, yeah, we're all unique, but at the same time is also kind of bleak in the sense that no one will ever fully understand how you understand the world and how you feel. Well, you just found the silver lining to uh, something I found to be one of the most bleak aspects of this episode, especially because they end on that. And they end with him saying it was that your whole life is basically a dream. And like every dream, there's a monster at the end of it. And then there's that shot of the guy in his underwear with the gas mask and the machete, which creeped me out. <laughs> that was just so creepy. I don't know what it is about. Like, it's, it's something, it has something to do with, uh, masked ominous people and just like walking like creepily. And did you ever see that movie Safe with Julianne Moore? No, I don't think so. Yeah, there's a scene that reminded me of that. There's a scene where because the whole premise of this movie is Julianne Moore thinks she has chemical uh, sensitivity, which is like if she's in, stuck in traffic, the camera will like zoom in on a car, the exhaust of a car, and she'll start coughing and weird, creepy, ambient music will go up. So she goes to this retreat where everyone is basically a specific fear. And most people uh, feel that they have what Julianne Moore has, which is chemical sensitivity. And then there's this a guy in this fencing uniform and with the fencing mask on, and he's limping, and he's walking weird, and Julianne Moore's like, who's that? And they're like, oh, that guy? He's afraid of everything. And you never know who he is, but he just walks throughout several scenes of that movie, and it just creeps me out. And I thought that 
ending the episode on that note with the guy with the gas mask in his underwear with machete and we have no idea who that is and it's this it's in the creepy louisiana setting i thought that was kind of brilliant because it just sent shivers down my spine i was so like haunted by it okay well let's talk about that that ending then let's go from the very beginning the conversation (laughs) all the way to to the the end end. (laughs) yeah let's go to the end and let's let's talk about that 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 final moment there okay first of all charlie i just want to say there is a part of me that hopes next week's episode will begin with him taking off the gas mask to reveal it's Brian Cranston. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just cooking meth in Louisiana just, for some reason. He's just cooking meth in his underwear. <laughs> he just happens to have a machete and a gas mask. <laughs> but but that wouldn't make sense. Breaking Bad started in 2007. <laughs> this is 95. Oh, Andrew. That's <laughs> you were, okay. You getting your dates mixed up. But uh, no, but that was... Really, really creepy, and uh, I feel like uh, it's going to be a very fast, much... I feel like each episode's getting a little more fast-paced, and I feel like we're going to know who that guy is, and there's going to be some sort of shootout with him or something. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, we know yeah. there's going to be a gunfight, because Hart basically told those other two detectives, like, hey, I get the feeling you've never been in a gunfight before. It's it's yeah. crazy. So, yeah, obviously, episode four, there's probably going to be a little bit of action there. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you uh, watched... If, if you visited the HBO website, Charlie, and checked out the, the True Detective materials there, they have like little five minutes kind of behind the scenes uh, interviews and stuff about each episode of True Detective. And they're actually not bad. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, networks, their behind the scenes stuff that they put on the website really isn't all that insightful or interesting. Uh, yeah. the, the stuff for True Detective has been pretty good so far. Uh, and in this week's little behind-the-scenes clip, uh, the, the show's creator, Nick Pizzolatto, explains that he got the idea for that gas mask from old medieval paintings of plague doctors. Apparently, that's that's like an old style of mask to guard against disease. And I thought that that was interesting, that that's where he uh, he got that idea. Yeah, I would not have thought that it would have come from a medieval uh, form of inspiration. It looked very uh, creepy in a contemporary way to me. But yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, Charlie. So now here's the question. This is Reggie Ledoux. He's got that crazy gas mask. Is he the killer? Or is he a killer? Because we know that there's something involving a a green-eared spaghetti monster. Mm Mm-hmm. Is the mask... What makes him a green-eared spaghetti monster? Well, the gas masks don't have ears. I mean, like, if anything, I, if they said, like, a green-eared elephant, uh, like, a green trunk elephant monster or what, something, like, it wouldn't make more sense to me, but I don't know. I agree with you. It's it's like it's like Memento to me, where they set it up as if, like, they you know that they caught someone, but you don't know if it's the actual person. Just like in the beginning of Memento, where it starts at the end and goes to the beginning, it's like he shoots someone who he thinks is his wife's killer, but you don't know if it is his wife's killer, and that puts you on edge, and you don't know whether or not it is going to be his wife's killer or not. So it, it's hard for me to guess. If I were to guess right now, I'd say, like you said, he's a killer, but probably not the one they're looking for. Or well, I mean, oh, come on. If you were a little kid and you saw that gas mask and that long noodle-like snout, you'd be like, yeah, green spaghetti. Yeah, yeah. but when I was a kid, I knew my difference between ears and a trunk. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> also, how great would that be if, like, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are about to, like, 
go in a shootout with him and then the mystery van from Scooby-Doo runs him over and they take off the mask and they're like, why, it's old man Jenkins from the convenience store. And I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling true detectives or something. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a really cool way to, to end the episode. It's a pretty big cliffhanger, very creepy. Getting back to our two main characters, Hart and Cole, and how depressed, and or, or rather, how depressing Cole is, because I yeah. don't think he's actually depressed. He needs a hug. <laughs> he does need a hug, even though it's just an illusion of comfort at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> here's my question for you, Charlie. Do you think Cole was always this depressing? Did he always have this philosophy? What has happened to him that has given them this worldview? Is it just the fact that his daughter died? Is it the fact that he's surrounded by death and his job constantly? I mean, there's that shot of him in his apartment just looking down at all those pictures of murdered women. Mm -hmm. I imagine if you're surrounded by that day after day, it has to get pretty depressing and you have to find some way to, to, to explain it. And to justify it to yourself, why is this happening? How could this exist? What is the point? Uh, you know, I, I can I can see how the death of his daughter combined with just that constant exposure to death mm -hmm. would would do that to a person. Yeah. Well, there is that moment last week where he said, it's not that thinking this way made me good for the job and I became better at the job because of this. I was always like this, and that made me good for the job. That's what it implies. If I were to guess, uh, he probably battled depression growing up and then in adulthood, and then uh, he got married and had a kid and probably got happy, and then when he lost all of that, that probably uh, made him spiral downwards into depression, because... I mean, not that not, not like this is good research or anything like that, but I'm trying to think of other detectives, popular uh, detective protagonists. And uh... I mean, it's not unusual for us to see depictions of flawed or negative to a certain extent detectives who don't really have their life together. I mean, just watch The Wire and look at McNulty. You know, there's a, a guy who's pretty good at his job but definitely has a drinking problem and isn't much fun to be around. I've been meaning to watch The Wire forever, and I got hooked on in treatment by accident. So <laughs> <That's> <laughs> once okay. I'm done with that show, I will go back to The Wire. <laughs> in, in treatment's a great show, too. What, what's different about the McConaughey character is that he has this whole intellectual philosophy to justify it to himself. And and that, I think, is what's what's interesting. And I'm I'm wondering, like... Did he just, like, study philosophy in college and has felt this way for a long time? Or is it only recently that he became more intellectual in his in his worldview? It is interesting, and they haven't given us any character flashbacks yet. But, yeah, I was thinking about other uh, protagonistic detectives uh, from other popular movies and TV shows. Like, like uh, Jodie Foster's character from Silence of the Lambs. Basically, they imply she wants to be a detective because she loved her father and... Uh, basically someone who robbed a convenience store shot him and she that broke her heart and the guy was never found and now she's devoted her life to finding uh, killers and whatnot in other scenarios. So it kind of nails down a very simplistic form of 
uh, that character's psychology as to why she wants to be a detective. And I kind of like that the show hasn't quite done that yet. Maybe they'll get to it. But I like the fact that it isn't, it's kind of open-ended because that makes it creepier because if it was all because of a dead girlfriend, if he kept uh, linking his depression back to uh, his dead daughter and uh, the how his marriage was broken up, then I feel like it would just be unrealistic. And the fact that they haven't exactly explained it yet, I'm okay with that because the world is full of depressing people and depression is a mental illness that doesn't exactly come with rhyme or reason. It's mostly chemical. So I feel like it's just realistic. Sometimes people are just depressed, I think. I know that's a really lame answer, but... But see, I don't think he's depressed. I think he's depressing and has a really (laughs) pessimistic view of the universe. I don't think he is clinically depressed. He's obviously not having a lot of trouble getting out of bed every morning. Obviously, I mean, in fact, it's the opposite. He can't Yes, but he did go to a psych ward. I mean, he... Right. He he probably he had his moments. I mean, he went for I don't know an extended period of time. I assume, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's he, not- he was he was probably depressed at, at one point, but I don't think he's depressed now. But like, but still, the double date with uh, Jennifer when like just the posture that he had, like when they were dancing, where he doesn't even wrap his hand around her. Uh, her hand, his hand is like his fingers are spread out and it's like he doesn't even care and he's not even paying attention. He's just like, Ugh. like it was a really darkly funny moment to me, but I was just like, you know, most guys, you know, like even I know a lot of people who are depressed who are trying to find dates. And yeah, I know that he has uh, broken up with his wife, but like and he has a dead daughter and he doesn't want to start a family and everything like that. But like that is kind of a fa- factor for me like this person's probably depressed oh speaking of of, of that double date uh, we got an email from a listener who who, who pointed out that it was in in the previous episode he mentioned that maggie had set him up with a woman named Lori that he had had a fairly serious relationship with oh i guess it's safe to say maybe we haven't seen the last of cole's dating life I wonder if Lori will appear on the show. Maybe. Uh, I got the impression that his dating life was dead from <laughs> this time the show started. But yeah, you're right. That's very true. Especially considering the uh, conversation that he has with uh, Maggie uh, towards the very end of the episode, which I thought was actually pretty heartbreaking. It was uh, a really painful delivery of a very depressing line that Matthew McConaughey utters to Michelle Monaghan that... You know, he intends it to be, oh, it's okay, I'm fine, we know what we want, we want to, he basically, uh, she basically says, come on, you need need to meet a nice girl, and he's like, why why don't you give her a chance, you know, both of you are stubborn, and then he basically says, no, we just know what we want, and we don't want to be alone. It's basically him saying, I'm fine, I don't mind being alone, it's fine by me, but, you know, you cut back to Michelle Monaghan's reaction, and it's pretty heartbreaking, because... She knows that Woody Harrelson's probably cheating on her and she's afraid to be alone to the point where she will take a cheating husband at this point because she's too scared to get a divorce and doesn't want to be alone. And right. that I found to be really sad. Really, really sad. I, I want to talk about about everything with Hart and his marriage uh, in a little bit. The, the, the oh, okay, was, okay. The last thing I want to say about Cole and his whole philosophy and everything he says at the end about, uh, you know, if you look into the eyes of the, of, of the victims, it's, it's a look of relief and like they're, they're welcoming death. I'm, I'm wondering, does that thought come out of grief 
for his daughter? Is it is he subconsciously trying to view his daughter's death as something positive? Like, well, yeah, it was tragic, but hey, it was a re- it was a release for her. She managed to escape her locked room and her own subjective experience, and 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 death was a release for her. I th- I think that point of view might be connected to the death of his daughter. I didn't actually put that together, but now that you're mentioning it, yeah, I can see him getting very depressed and pondering over the meaning of life and is it worth anything and how can uh, everyone believe in the spiritual forms of faith after I've been a good person for the most part and had my life basically ruined for me. It, 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 you know, it is a depressing idea to think the idea of welcoming death. I mean, that's a very scary, very sad, very disturbing idea. And yet at the same time, when it comes to putting that in focus with the facts that he's trying to bring out some sort of silver lining with the death of his daughter and that his daughter is okay in the end, even though she died. I mean, it's it's like reverse psychology for him in some weird ways. Well, here, well, here's the interesting thing, Charlie. Now that I'm thinking about it, in a way, Cole has, in that respect, Cole has his own his own faith, his own belief that he's trying to cling to. You know, if that line of thinking is related to the death of his daughter, and he wants to view death as this as this form of release, it's not the first time he's brought up something that would kind of spin his daughter's death in a positive way. You know, it, last week he said something to the effect of, you know, her death, it, it, it spared him the sin of being a father. Mm-hmm. He, he desperately wants to believe that his daughter's death maybe wasn't his fault, maybe wasn't in the grand scheme of the universe, wasn't a bad thing. He, he wants to believe that it's okay, that it, that it, that it could be positive. I mean, you could argue that that is his faith. That's what he wants to believe. And that's what he's blindly trying to cling to. That is a good point. I didn't think about that at all. And listeners, please don't kill yourselves after you listen to this. <laughs> please uh, don't commit harakiri or anything. I don't know why I went to harakiri out of all things. <laughs> That's like the most unlikely way that any of these listeners will. <laughs> yeah, because obviously everyone has access to a samurai sword. <laughs> I just got like one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is deep, but I am sad. <laughs> like, moments, like It's very difficult to think about and there's very little about the show that is pretty escapist in its own ways i mean like even when it treads through plot material that we've seen before it brings up these theories of religion that are very potent and at the same time i don't feel like they're attempting to offend anyone or push anybody's buttons i feel like they're trying to encourage people to think and question their own views in terms of their relationship to with their own views, uh, you know, question their own views on religion and measure them up against basically polar opposites where you have Martin Cole's views, which are basically white and black views. One is I'm very religious and the other is religion is, you know, non-existent. And they're kind of like asking you to like weigh your own form of faith in between theirs, I feel like in some ways. And yet I don't feel like the show is ever siding with a certain character I feel like if it were to be siding with a certain character, it would probably be Cole. But at the same time, I think you can have a character who believes certain things and the show, but the show itself might not be saying that it believes what the character believes. It's just making a statement on characters who have a certain perception on something. 
For example, I don't think that Martin Scorsese wants you to believe that you can go sell fake stocks and do a bunch of coke and have sex with whoever you want and life will be awesome like in the Wall I, I was Wall just Street. about to bring that up, Charlie. I was yeah. just about to say. <laughs> but, you know, but Charlie, depiction is endorsement, of course. I mean, look at the Wolf of Wall Street. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andrew, I had sex with so many prostitutes. I had so many quaaludes. I, it was amazing. No, uh, no. I Just like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street was a film where characters enjoyed horrible, horrible things such as uh, sex with various people and uh, drug use and illegal activities. And not for a second in that film that I think Martin Scorsese was endorsing that just as I believe that the showrunners aren't asking you to either be a... Uh, full of Catholic or religious faith, or be uh, making trying to make you think, you know, why are you religious? It's really uh, not worth anything. In fact, it's all so pointless, and life is so meaningless that you might as well die. Like, I don't feel like the show is endorsing anything. So, well, last topic on to something maybe a little bit happier. Everything with with Art and and his marriage. This episode, the scene where he confronts Cole on his front lawn about about mowing the yard. Yeah. It was so <laughs> darkly humorous to me. You it was for me over too. Here and you mowed my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I like mowing my own lawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very funny. And it makes me all the more frustrated with Woody Harrelson's character. And I obviously get that the show wants us to be frustrated with this character, but I will say, as of right now, I'm ready to step aside from his hypocritical adulterous ways not like it's bad or anything it's just i get it and i found this episode to be a little more familiar in terms of what it uh, explores with that side of him in comparison to last week's episode because we have him lying to his wife about the fact that he's having an affair and then they have sex and then they go out dancing and then he happens to bump into the girl he's having an affair with at the on the dance floor and then he happens to get drunk and go to her uh, her house and beat the crap out of his boyfriend her boyfriend saying did she suck your cock or whatever? And, you know, it's all very well done. It's all very well acted. It's very well shot. It's even pretty well written compared to most of those scenes that uh, I basically just explained. But at the same time, I was kind of thinking we've been down this path before and this isn't showing us too much that we already know. And while it's consistent with the character's development on and his views of women, it was the part of the episode that I didn't care for as much. I'm going to argue with you a little bit there, Charlie. I do think that it, it clarified certain things about about Hart. Specifically, I think it clarified how much of an old-fashioned sexist he is. He, he wants to be the master of his house. He wants to have uh, a wife and a family. And he wants to be viewed as a family man. But he also wants to be viewed as, uh, I, I believe... Eric Adams in his AV in his review over at the AV Club put it. He he wants to be viewed as very virile. He wants to be viewed as as you know a man's man, someone who's really sexual in mm -hmm. that way. The alpha male. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he wants to dominate. That's that's the interesting thing. It's not just that he's a hypocrite or he's a sexist. He wants to dominate the women in his life. And I found it really interesting that when he, he violently confronts Lisa at her apartment and he throws her, her, her new boyfriend up against the wall, he doesn't care 
that they've been having sex. He just wants to know, did she suck your dick? Did she <laughs> did she submit in that way? Did you dominate yeah. her in that way? Did she yeah. get down on her knees or whatever? Was she a submissive party? That is an interesting point, yeah. That's what he's concerned about. He, he doesn't necessarily mind... He, or, or I shouldn't say he doesn't mind. He's willing to accept that she's going to sleep with someone else, but he doesn't want anyone else to dominate her the way that he dominates her. No, I think it was a well-acted, well-written, very well-done scene for something that we've seen before. And I did like the fact that the boyfriend wasn't like, fuck you, and just being, you know, alpha male back to him. He's pretty scared, and then he's like, a little bit, yeah. Like, he doesn't, he just gives in, and then he's like, well, sorry about that, and then it cuts to... Well, it's because Woody Harrelson is holding up his badge. He's he's making it clear, I'm an officer of the law. There's nothing you can do, and it reminded me of what uh, Cole said last week. You know, I'm a police officer. I can do anything I want with impunity. Yeah, that's it true. Matter. Mm-hmm. And I did, but the one thing I did think was really funny after that is it cuts to uh, the 2012 interview where uh, <laughs> Marty says something uh, along the lines of boundaries are good. You, you, you have to have boundaries. I thought that was a pretty funny punchline to the whole scene. The scene that I enjoyed more than that, though, was the scene, the two scenes where they talked to one of his daughters, the older daughter, who drew a bunch of very perverted pictures in elementary school. And Michelle Monaghan is the only one who's being really, really intimate and knows how to handle the situation because and she says it makes something very nice look very ugly and it's not right. And, you know, I actually found that scene to be entirely credible because, you know, we've all been little kids and we've all had that moment where you think it's funny when you find out what sex is and you can't imagine, you know, when you haven't reached double digits, how something like that could be enjoyable. And then after that scene, Woody Harrelson is just looking through the pictures and he's like, oh, well, she's a kid and then just flops him up. And then she goes, that's all you're going to do. You're not concerned at all. And he's like, well, you know, I'm concerned, but, you know, all kids learn about it. I mean, she'll be fine. And she basically says, all girls find out before boys. And he goes, oh, that's not true. And she says, no, it is because they have to. And I found right. that to be a really powerfully subtle line about yes. how he doesn't even understand what his daughter's going through. He's looking at it through a male perspective. Like, not that guys don't do the similar things, but it was a, it was from a very like, oh, pfft, you know, you're just learning. You're, it's okay, whatever. And, you know, she's what, seven? That's pretty young to know what sex is. Well, here's the thing. He's so blind that he can't he, he he can't admit to himself oh maybe my daughter needs to learn about these things in a at a certain age or in a certain way because she's a woman and because she might be preyed upon by men who want to take advantage of her he yeah. can't allow himself to say that because then he would have to consider oh wait am i one of those men yeah, who preys on women? That's mm-hmm. that's all how blind he is. Not even not even his daughter can get through to him in that way. And I, I it was kind of funny how he's shrugging off all of these things at home. It's clear that he he's barely there. He doesn't really seem engaged by the fact that his his daughter is having problems and yet in 2012 he's sitting there with a big grin on his face going well you know i i'm a i'm a father and yeah you you just don't understand what it's like to be a good father 
if you don't have kids. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out, like, is that what he really believes or is this just part of the show that he's trying to put out there? Does he just want everyone to believe that he's the good family man, the good father, and he so wants everyone else to believe that he's not even willing to admit otherwise to himself? Oh, I think so, because Michelle Monaghan also has that other line where she confronts him and says, you know, what's up? You've barely been around. You aren't really, you know, involved with anything going on in the family. And you don't barely spend any time with me. And he's like, oh, come on. You know, remember those days where we didn't even we didn't even leave my room for like an entire weekend. And she goes, yeah, we're not fucking like we're 19 anymore. And then she goes, God, you were so much smarter when I met you. And that just made me think, oh, he is like. He, he his brain stopped developing developing at 19 and he's like in that mentality like he is that naive still because he's still going to bars making pussy jokes and he's having affairs and he's he, he's optimistic more optimistic than Matthew McConaughey but he's so naive and it's all about appearance it's not about substance you know it, substance scares him whether it's Matthew McConaughey's bleak perspectives on the world or trying to talk to Michelle Monaghan about what's going on with his marriage. He always avoids anything with any real importance to it to help blind himself in some ways. He's just as compliant right. in helping and uh, blinding himself to the facade that he is this great father. He's a great detective and he's the man of the house. Right. He is not honest about anything. And Cole is perhaps a little bit too honest about everything. And a little <laughs> bit too transparent. Even even smaller bits of the episode, like, you know, Matthew McConaughey is like interviewing the mentally disabled person. And he's like, oh, this theory makes total sense. It had to be this guy because he's mentally retarded, man. Like he basically gives that tone like, you know, he's messed up in the head, man. He definitely is a you know, total suspect. And I'm looking at this character and I'm just like, I know that's not the killer. Like, right. you know, like, and I'm not like, I, I know that it's part of the show for him to be like, he could be a suspect, but like, he seems so confident in the fact that like, maybe we got him that I was just like, no. Well, the way he did, the way he justified it wasn't terrible. Like, oh, he could have done it accidentally and then tried to make it a good thing in some way to justify it to himself. And I, I like how Cole acknowledged you know, that's that's better. You're trying to get out of your own head and, and into the mind of, a, of the killer. That's not bad. Okay. <laughs> You're not right, but it's a step in the right direction. Oh, yeah. He basically comes up and he's like, I can see this being some whole retard deal. Like, he uses the word retard in such a throwaway, <laughs> like, trashy, you know, like a 13-year-old uses it as if they just discovered it. Like, oh, this retard totally did it. Like, and that's what made me annoyed is I'm just thinking... How old are you? 12? Like, <laughs> no, 19. We, we figured it out. He is 19 inside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you want to say about this episode before we move on to, uh, to listener feedback? Um, I believe that next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, so I don't think there's an episode next week. Yes, we will be taking the week off. I'm looking forward to uh, the episode where Cormac McCarthy uh, surprise guest stars on the show. <laughs> he's probably a ghost writer i totally buy that <laughs> it feels like a cormac mccarthy it, it really does in some ways too i mean woody harrelson could basically be playing the same character he did in no country for old men right i mean no they'll bring in cormac mccarthy for season two and it'll all be set in mexico 
and it'll be it'll just be the same show but in mexico and that that's how you'll you know it's cormac mccarthy and uh there will be a ton of mexican characters and he'll give you no subtitles because <laughs> because <laughs> i'm not sure if you've read a cormac mccarthy book that has this but mccormac mccarthy uh deals a lot of his uh books take place on the border of texas and mexico and he has a bunch of spanish characters but he writes it in spanish and gives you no translation (laughs) so true detective season two half the characters will be mexican and you will have no idea what's going on and you won't even be able to translate it i speak spanish charlie so i'll help you out (laughs) Uh, yeah thank you i uh wasn't exactly my strongest subject in high school so (laughs) gonna need that all right well before we wrap up we got some voicemails and some emails i'd like to discuss with you uh, charlie first we were contacted on twitter by at fine gent one who goes by the name fine gent and fine gent said that he or she is a fan of the podcast and had a pretty cool theory about cole i i want to get your take on this charlie fine gent says quote cole is playing everyone audience included he shows no expression in 1995 or 2012 and he has stated that he was a deep undercover operative that has no expiration date. He's still undercover. His words and recounting have expressive thoughts, but his exterior demeanor is very flat. What do you think about that idea, Charlie? Is Cole still undercover? I'm not sure that he's undercover, but I totally would buy that he's playing everyone. Cole is Kaiser Soze, Andrew. (laughs) 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 It's the, yeah, exact same episode, exact same ending from Usual Suspects, I'm sure. That's exactly how the season will end. Uh, No, but uh, I don't, I don't believe that Cole is being 100% honest, but I don't think that Marty is either. In fact, we know that Marty isn't because the show's shown us certain scenes and how they went down and then shown us how Marty describes it. And for the most part, Cole's dialogue uh, with the cops and everything he says during his interrogation is basically played out on screen exactly as he depicts it. So that's interesting. And I'm not sure if that would be considered manipulation or because because the show is saying this is what Marty's saying, but this is what really happened. And then it's twisting it would and then the twist that might seem a little manipulative. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a good question. I think it's an interesting theory. I would be more willing to go with it if instead of investigating a murder, they were investigating something related to drugs. Yeah. Like like maybe Cole would actually be the undercover narc agent there to see how much drug use is present among police officers, for example, how how police can be corrupt. That's something that I can see him going undercover for. But if he's undercover now, what is his ultimate goal? Why is he undercover? What's he trying yeah. to, to to really get at? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I can't wait for the episode where it's just one hour hallucination entirely through his perspective. That's probably how the show's going to end. It's just it's one big hallucination. <laughs> it's like it's like this uh, series finale of Twin Peaks where David Lynch was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to throw everything out there and none of it will make any sense. But it will be through the character's perspective of Cole and it will make sense this time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Charlie, I think I've discovered the number one true detective fan i think we have found the biggest fan of true detective i thought that you and i liked the show but we do not have anything on floyd 
from Ohio. Okay, this guy left us a voicemail, which I'm going to play now. And he also sent us several very long emails about each episode of the show. We don't have time to read everything that he sent us, but I'm going to pick out some of the highlights for us to discuss. Uh, Floyd, if you're listening, we salute you and we thank you for all of your support and all the feedback. Seriously, uh, this guy has thought long and hard about this show. Uh, First off, here's the voicemail he sent us. Hi, this is Floyd from Lancaster, Ohio. I'm calling about the True Detective uh, Detect This podcast. Apologize, guys. I'm a little bit behind. I'm just listening to the uh, uh, your first, uh, uh, actually your second episode, but about the first episode of the show. Uh, one thing I had considered as well, you guys talked about with the opening scene, um, whether or not the fire had taken place uh, the time, at the time of the crime scene. I went back and watched that first before I even listened to your podcast. I was wondering the same thing, and I went back and watched that opening scene a couple different times and picked up a couple things. When they come to the crime scene, uh, and the detectives do, you can see smoke coming around from certain areas of the crime scene. So I think the fire was from the same night. Also, something else I picked up was uh, whenever that person, whoever that is, lights the little bird catcher or whatever it is, a little satanic symbol, um, it definitely sounds like a big lighter. And obviously, uh, uh, Cole is prominent with his uh, Zippo. Uh, so that was something else I picked up as well. Uh, great show, guys. Enjoying it. Thanks. Keep it up. Okay, Charlie. That's an interesting theory that Floyd brings up. Getting back to that opening shot from the very first episode of The Field on Fire, there's that click of a lighter. Cole has his Zippo, or whatever that he that he uses. Do you think Cole set the field on fire? Definitely a possibility. I did not notice the clicking of a Zippo or a lighter uh, both times I watched the first episode. I haven't even been paying attention to to Cole and Marty's smoking habits. I didn't even notice that there was a, a lot of focus on the lighter. I noticed that Matthew McConaughey smokes a lot, but that's like a given. It's like he basically might as well be a character on Mad Men because he pulls one out every scene. But <laughs> well, well, right. But have they ever have they uh, have they focused on his lighter a lot? I don't think they have. That's a good point. It's just because Floyd is such an observant watcher of this show charlie yeah he, he picked that out i mean to be fair i watched the first episode twice but i only watched it twice when that was the only episode available or that had aired so and not to mention the first time i watched it i was just in awe of the cinematography of the shot in general i was just like my god that is a gorgeous field that's on fire and i didn't even pay attention to anything in the background really so but it does make me think, like, it does make me want to go back, and it makes me think of, like, that uh, technique Harmony Corinne used in Spring Breakers, where they had the gun cocking in between scenes. And right. And, like, if you didn't listen for that, you might have missed it, but... Oh, speaking of the visuals, Charlie, we didn't even talk about that this episode. Two shots in this episode blew me away. The first was the shot when they're at the church, and you've got the ship moving in the background. Yes, I noticed that, too, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wait! What is happening? And then I realized, oh, it's probably just one of Cole's hallucinations. I'm assuming <laughs> that's what it was. Or I don't think there was an actual ship back there. I don't think they were near the water. Maybe they were. Maybe but. they were. I think they moved away from the church during that point. But I was thinking, I wasn't even thinking, oh, it's one of Cole's hallucinations. I was thinking, oh, this is allegorical for something involving water and the ship and the cases moving forward or something. I couldn't think of anything deep. But I was wondering, I was thinking, was is 
that seems like it would be on purpose, and yet at the same time, I have no idea what that could mean. I doubt that they just showed up on that set, and they were like, oh, great, the boat happens to be in the background. Let's go quick, everyone. I doubt that they timed it that way. Right, that thing is so massive, there's no way that was actually there. That had to be CG. Yeah, it might as well be hitting an iceberg and sinking in the background, for Christ's sake. <laughs> like, yeah, it was very much CG, I could tell. And it does have the... Isn't there a noise of the horn blowing or something? Right. Yeah, so it, it was obviously, like... I did notice it because it was basically screaming, look at me, I'm in the background with that horn, but <laughs> uh, I don't know what it could mean. I, I doubt they just put that in there just to throw people off or be like, ah, oh, we'll just mess with them. Well, the cool thing is you're not expecting it. And we we're just so accustomed to having it, you know, a shot cut and then to have the horizon be steady. So when it, when it cuts to that shot and it, suddenly it's moving at first, you don't realize it's the background that's moving. You, 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 you want to think that the foreground is actually what's moving. Now it, it, it almost gives the impression that, the world is spinning extra fast, out of control. You know, mm. either either the clouds or the horizon are moving by too quickly, or the ground is spinning out of control. And then it took me a second to realize, oh, no, no, wait, that's a ship back there that's moving. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was such a, a cool cut. It was a cool cut. I don't know what it could mean. It was very, I don't want to say jarring because that sounds negative no it was kind of jarring for that first couple seconds i was like whoa what's happening here this shot something's moving what's moving yeah i mean it i i watched the episode twice and it still threw me off the second time i was like oh yeah wow why is there a boat here (laughs) like what body of water are they near uh the second shot that blew me away was when they're on their way to that really really small town and they stop on the bridge Mm -hmm. and it's just the shot of the car on the bridge and then it looks so run down and there's like bags or, or rags or something hanging mm-hmm. from the bridge. It's such a gorgeous shot. I was like, you go, Kerry Fukunaga. Yeah. Like visually, this show is just knocking it out of the park. Yeah, I thought the opening shot of the field where the church congregation took place and was gorgeous. And then even uh, the shots after that in which it's much cloudier and it's just a shot of Matthew McConaughey uh, interviewing two people from the church, I thought was really nice, uh, gothically beautiful wide sh- wide shots of the setting. And yeah, that, that is one thing I will say. Not nearly as many medium shots in this episode. Still quite a few, but, you know, like compared to the other two, I feel like there were a lot more... Uh, big detailed shots with where it wanted you to focus on the characters, but a lot more in the background as well. Yeah. A lot more landscape shots, mm-hmm. I think in this episode. Uh, all right. Getting back to, to some of the feedback, uh, I'm just going to read a few portions of Floyd's emails. Uh, Charlie, in our first episode, I commented on how the characters names could be important. Uh, at least if we're treating the show kind of, kind of in a literary sense, we talked about the connotations of the words heart and coal and rust. And, uh, Floyd went the extra mile. He took the time to research what the characters' names actually mean. And here's what he had to say. I'm, I'm gonna go through what he had to say about, about a couple of names. Uh, first of all, Cole. He says, not a lot here, but under the name Cole, we find uh, the, the, the meaning swarthy, among other descriptions, associate, associated with black and coal. Also, I know I'm reaching here, Cole is short for Nicholas, which means victor of the people. Interesting. 
Martin Hart is a bit more interesting. Martin roots back to the god Mars, who was the god of war. Uh, Hart is Old English for stag or deer, and it can be traced to the root word for horn, which is interesting considering the uh, the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, in French, it's an old word for rope. In Middle Dutch, it's an old nickname meaning hard, strong, ruthless, or unruly. Pretty interesting connotations there, Charlie. Now I'm yeah. trying to think, what's, what are they trying to say about Hart here? If, if, if that name was chosen for a specific reason, what uh, is, is that foreshadowing? Yeah, I'm starting to think maybe Hart's the, the detective we should be worried about, Charlie. Definitely. Uh, Dora, by itself, means gift. But it is usually short for Dorothy or Theodora, which means God's gift. That's pretty interesting, given all of the religious stuff going on in the show. Mm-hmm. Joel Thoreau, the minister uh, that we saw in this episode. Joel was a minor prophet in the Old Testament. The word literally means uh, the Lord is God. It's appropriate, given the fact that he's a minister. Uh, and Thoreau comes from Theodore, which again is based on the Greek Theodoricus, which means God's gift. So a lot of lot of stuff about God and gifts in these names, Charlie. And and finally, the last name I I, I want to bring up that Floyd researched for us, Reginald Ledoux, the suspect that they uh, encounter at the end of this episode. Reginald, uh, the root word is Regina, which means ruler, regal, king, or queen. And Floyd points out, didn't Charles Lang say that Dora told him that she had met a king? Yes. So, lots of lots of regal imagery going on in this show as well, Charlie, which I think is interesting. Definitely. My head is swimming. My mind is swimming with all these theories now. And <laughs> my God, my hat is off to you, Floyd. You put me to shame. <laughs> like, <laughs> I... Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Every single one of these names uh, could, like, potentially hinting at this person clearly being the killer, and if not the killer, then of a metaphorical purpose for what the show, uh, what their per- a meta- what their metaphorical purpose uh, for conveying the themes of the show is or are. It's like Floyd. He's he's, this guy, he's a smart guy. He pointed out that Dora's diary contains the phrase "in Carcosa." Uh, Carcosa was a fictional city in a short story by Ambrose Bierce, and it was later expanded upon in a book of short stories called The King in Yellow by Robert Chambers in 1895. And uh, Carcosa was later mentioned by authors like H.P. Lovecraft, uh, uh-huh. who was famous for his, his horror stories. So that's just a little interesting tidbit of information there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Floyd also had some really interesting thoughts uh, based on the discussion we had last week about the show's treatment of women and how Mm -hmm. it's handling those themes. Uh, Here's some of what he writes. He says, uh, Cole is clearly and obviously more comfortable talking to Maggie than Martin during the dinner scene. Uh, Buying drugs in the hotel room, Cole is blatantly offered sex and turns it down. He is controlling the situation, even when it comes to the normally female-dominant role of sexual desire. Cole has the upper hand. Uh, Cole is the one that goes with the young prostitute when she leaves the trailer, and Hart is clearly uncomfortable, left alone with the madam. How is this relevant to the show overall? It's at the core of the show. The killer, as mentioned by Cole, was carrying out a sexual fantasy and dominating the victim. 
when analyzing the relationship between the victim and killer, you can actually argue that the killer is being controlled by the victim and that his need to dominate them is so overpowering that he can't control his urges, essentially meaning that he is not in control but being made uncomfortable by the very interaction with the victim. Now, the individual victims themselves aren't controlling him, obviously, but what they represent, the emotions in the killer that they trigger, do. That's an interesting point, Charlie, that, that whole idea that the, the killers are actually being dominated by the victims in the sense that, that something about the victim triggers this urge in them that they, they can't control. And, and that whole idea of domination and what we were just talking about earlier in regards to heart, I think that's clearly becoming a pretty dominant theme of the show. Yeah, after you just read all of uh, Floyd's theories, I'm pretty sure we've been focusing on the wrong <laughs> character in terms of, like, we've come up with all these theories on how Matthew McConaughey is the killer, and now, like, with all of Floyd's research, and not to mention all of the, what we've seen of uh, how Marty deals uh, with women compared to how Russ deals with women. Michelle Monaghan, uh, Maggie, is always the one in control of their conversation and always seems to have the upper hand over him. Same with Lisa and even the prostitute, uh, even the uh, pimp, uh, the female pimp from last week's episode had control over him. The, another thing I wanted to point out, and this nullifies, this goes is a strike against our theory about uh, Rust in the beginning. Has Marty found anything useful when it's come to this case? Because Rust seems to be doing all the work. And Marty's coming up with half-assed theories on how, oh, the retard did it. You know, like, he's just not really, like, doing anything. He's always, Matthew McConaughey is always the one doing work. He doesn't even seem to be trying to solve anything. That is a good point. That is a good point. So you could argue that, oh, maybe Marty's the killer and he actually doesn't want the case to be solved. But I feel like if that was the case, he wouldn't work with with Rust. He'd tell his boss, no, I don't want to work with Cole. No, take him off the case. Well, maybe that he's afraid that Cole would or Russ would figure that out right away and that would look suspicious. So maybe he's trying to come up with a gradual dislike or uh, he's trying to maybe he's trying to figure out ways that uh, he can find Russ to be a uh, unreliable detective, either for him personally or for the case. And maybe he's looking I mean, he's always trying to get him drunk, too. Did you notice that? Uh, like, uh, maybe he's looking for a way to, like, say, I can't work with him. I don't know. Because if he's, like, clearly the killer and he's like, I don't want to work with him and, and then just makes up some lame excuse, wouldn't that kind of raise awareness for Russ to begin with if he is the killer? I don't know. Maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit. And by we, I mean mostly me. But <laughs> well, the more I think about it, the more I, I, I'm convinced that probably neither of our two lead characters are the killer. I don't think that's going to be a big twist at the end. But I, I do think that if either one of them was revealed to be the killer, I'm, I'm definitely starting now to think that it would be Hart. Just because yeah. of how he views women, he does have to be the dominant one. And we saw in this episode that if he can't get what he wants, and if he can't dominate who he wants to dominate, and they reject him, he will react violently. So yeah. I, that, that does raise a few red flags. Maybe it's his daughters. Yeah, that's you. You, you know what? You, you <laughs> totally solved the case, Charlie. 
it, oh. it's, the, it's the little heart daughters, and that's why they're drawing all those creepy pictures. They're the killers. As soon as I saw those pictures, I knew there was something wrong. <laughs> all right. Well, Floyd, we appreciate all your emails and all the feedback. Uh, we, sorry we, we didn't have time to cover everything, but really interesting stuff. We're glad that there are fans like you out there who will obsess over the show and consider all these details. You really put us to shame, Floyd. We're not worthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. We, we're not worthy. Uh, you're much better fans of True Detective than we are. Uh, but, but thank you for all your support and for writing in. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget, you can call us at 336-793-2509 to leave us a voicemail. Or you can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and don't forget that if you leave us a positive review on iTunes, uh, you can become an honorary member of the Detect This team and help us solve the case of this show. Don't forget you can sc- you can subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher, and you can donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. We are partnered with Amazon. If you visit our affiliates page and click the Amazon banner, uh, you'll be taken directly to Amazon.com. If you use our site as the portal to get to Amazon, anything you you, you buy off there uh, will get a small percentage of that. So that would really help us out. You can buy something for yourself and help us out at the same time. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up in two weeks. So go buy some flowers or some gifts for your significant other through Amazon using our site and uh, help and show your love for, for, for Film Geek radio and detect this at the same time uh and don't forget to check out other great shows on film geek radio including cinema fix the thin place and the agents of shield cast which is all about marvel's agents of shield on abc charlie where can people find you online you can find my work at edge boston and movie mezzanine and you can also follow me on twitter at ct nash 91 that's ct nash 91 you can find my film reviews at moviemezzanine.com and my TV reviews at patheos.com on the blog Cinema Meditations. Uh, I also have a Letterboxd account. Uh, you can find me there at Writer Andrew for more film thoughts. Oh, I do too. Same as my Twitter name, ctnash91. Yeah, my Twitter, my Twitter name's the same as well. It's at Writer Andrew. Uh, follow me on Twitter so we can keep talking about True Detective. Uh, that'll wrap it up with this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And we're telling you, she ain't done drowned. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!